York City, you don't have to drive in nasty winter conditions if you don't want to, which is one of my favorite things because I'm really bad at winter driving. When you're up in Vermont or Colorado or Canada, especially if you're on vacation and have no idea what you're doing, like me, knowing just a few strategies for winter driving can save your life. On today's episode, we talked to Bridgestone winter driving expert Mark Cox about anti-lock braking systems, what to do if you find yourself in a skid, and the difference between all those tires you see at the tire store. Then, we have a very special testing table with Popular Mechanics Senior Associate Editor Matt Goulet, who just returned from the Outdoor Retailers Show in Salt Lake City, where he tried out some new gadgets and equipment for winter adventures, including a scientifically advanced new type of rubber that can help your shoes stick to ice. I feel like someone should make winter tires out of that. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and this is the most useful podcast ever. We have with us here Mark Cox, who is a driving instructor at the Bridgestone Winter Driving School uh, in Colorado, I believe. Is that is that where you are? Yeah, it's in uh, Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Which is a very snowy place, and you have been teaching there since 1984. That's correct. I am from Florida and have no idea how to drive in winter weather, so I'm hoping to learn some things today. So just to start with, who are the kind of people that you end up teaching out there? Well, you know, we have two different uh, programs. One is geared more toward safety and the everyday driver, and the other one is geared more for, uh, toward performance and racing. Um, on the safety side, we have a lot of individuals, um, a lot of corporate groups, um, some law enforcement, uh, first responders, young drivers, you know, pretty good range of, of different folks. Um, on the performance and racing side, we have current pro race drivers, military groups, driving enthusiasts that are you know, hoping to get better and maybe enter the, the pro racing ranks. So it's a pretty wide variety of people. I actually read, I read in your bio that uh, you have some internal revenue service enforcement agents that come, and I thought that was insane. Like, how often do they have to, how often do they have to chase people? Well, I don't really know, but there are a few of them that are pretty good at it. <laughs> that is terrifying, um, and I'll be paying my taxes on time. <laughs> um, so when you're driving in the snow, is it more about preparation or is it more about skill? You know, it's both, because no matter how much skill you have, if you don't have the proper equipment, you can't apply it. You're limited by the equipment. So really, you know, skill and equipment go hand in hand. Um, you know, the most important in winter conditions being tires, because that's what connects you to the road, really. That, that's your only connection to the earth. Right. And what should I, you know, if I have, uh, if I have a car and I'm from Florida and I have no idea what I'm doing, obviously there are there's snow tires and there are chains. Is one of those better than the other? Snow tires across the board. Chains are a last-ditch effort if you become stuck. Um, if you're driving off-road in a, uh, a four-wheel drive vehicle in very deep snow, um, or if you just absolutely get caught in a terrible blizzard and have no other choice. Um, but in many cases, chains actually degrade the performance of a true winter tire. Oh, interesting. And why is that? Just because they can increase stopping distances and, and slip and brake. Um, all kinds of different tests have been done. And you're better off with a really good winter tire. Okay. And, uh, and what about braking systems? I mean, obviously you want some sort of anti-lock brake. What, what is, uh, are there newer systems that people have been, been putting into cars lately? was mandated in 2007. So mm -hmm. every car manufactured after 2007 has ABS brakes. The main thing is to realize whether your car has them or not. 
Um, having said it's mandated, some larger trucks didn't come under that mandate uh, until a few years later and only had two-wheel um, ABS. So the main thing is to know whether you have it or not because it's two different techniques with and without ABS. The one benefit of ABS is allows you to brake and steer. You can keep your foot on the brake and still maintain some steering effectiveness when you use the ABS system. You can't do that if you don't have ABS. Okay, so let's kind of get into this. If, uh, if I have ABS and I need to, you know, I start, I guess I start sliding, what do I, what's the technique for, for that? Well, for, first you ha- we have to clarify that the brakes are never the answer to a skid, ever, in oh. any situation. Okay. If you've created a skid, that's a different problem, and you need to solve that first and get the car straight, then apply the brakes and try to slow down. Um, but in, in everyday driving, when you're just pressing on your brakes, the most effective way to slow a car is to press on the brake pedal until just before the point that the wheel locks up, which on ice and snow can be kind of hard to feel. Um, if you have a car with ABS, you might feel the ABS just starting to tick a little bit, and that's kind of a, a good way to use ABS as a sensor um, that, oh, look, I'm starting to use that, that I'm right at the edge of lockup. So in your everyday driving, if you start to feel that, you need to slow down a little bit. You're getting right up against the limit of the conditions. But if you do find yourself in a true emergency and you have to stop the car in the shortest possible distance, you slam on the brakes, you hold them down, and you press as hard as you can um, because the ABS computer is sensitive to how quickly you apply the pedal and how hard you press. So you want to push on that brake pedal almost as if you're trying to break it off and that'll maximize the efficiency of the ABS system. I feel like it's probably what my body would naturally do if I was in an emergency anyway. (laughs) Which is why ABS was developed, actually, and how it was developed, because that natural panic instinct, in this case, um, is controlled by computer. Um, In the old days, if you went to that natural thing and just locked up the wheels, well, then that creates an entirely different problem. Okay. So that, that is part of how that system was developed. So if you're driving an old car and you don't have that, what should you do? Well, in that case, you want to manually apply the same concept of anti-lock brakes. You want to brake as hard as you can to reach lockup so that you know you've used all of the grip or traction available, but you want to keep that lockup as short as possible. You then release the brake, allow the wheels to roll and help you maintain directional stability, and then you pump the brake again and again and again, um, rapidly in succession, kind of manually applying that on-off technique that ABS does by computer with your foot. Um, So earlier we were talking about getting into a skid, um, and you were saying that you have to deal with that first before you start wanting to slam on your brakes. What, what What would you do in that situation? Well, the first thing you have to do is identify which wheels are sliding because there are two basically different kind of skids. There are actually a few more subsets of that, but basically it's one of two. The first skid, you're going to a corner, you turn the steering wheel, and nothing happens. The car just wants to go straight. So that's a front wheel skid. Um, In that case, first thing you do is take your foot off of the gas if you're accelerating through the corner, uh, because you shouldn't be. You want to separate the controls. You slow the car down, then you turn the steering wheel. You don't want to be steering and braking or steering and on the gas on an icy surface ever. Um, So if you are on on the gas pedal, ease off. That'll help create a weight transfer to the front wheels. And simultaneously, you turn the steering wheel back towards straight just a little bit to make it easier for the front wheels to start rolling and regain traction. 
And as soon as that happens, at that point, then you can smoothly steer back into the corner and, and get through. Is that where the uh, the kind of a- aphorism to steer into a skid comes from? No, I've... that's the other type of skid. Oh, and, okay. And most people have a lot of confusion about that. But uh, really, the, the front wheel skid is more dangerous because even with the perfect correction, it takes a long time to occur. Um, so as a driver, your best bet is to always avoid that front wheel skid by adjusting your speed to the conditions and slowing down before you go into a corner, not while you're in a corner. Okay. Yeah, that one's never happened to me, but that sounds scary. I would, I would probably slam on my brakes, which would be a bad idea. Um, right, because that, if you don't have enough traction or grip to turn, you certainly don't have enough to turn and brake. The front wheel skid is one kind of skid. What would be the other kind of skid that you could get into? The other kind of skid is the rear wheel skid, when the rear of the car tends to swing out. And we're not talking about, you know, a rear wheel drive car in a parking lot that you just hit the gas too hard. That, that's a simple fix. Just take your heavy foot off the gas. But we're talking more about any kind of car that perhaps you're driving down the highway, you decide a little bit late to take an, an exit ramp, so you lift off the gas, which creates a weight transfer to the front wheels, gives you great steering, but at the same time it unloads the rear wheels as you turn on that uh, exit ramp. So with the rear wheels being unloaded, they tend to slide to the outside, create, tending the car toward a spin. So that's when it comes into the old adage of uh, steer into the skid. Um, a simpler way that we like to tell people to do that is to look where you want the car to go and point the front wheels there. That way there's no confusion about which way into the skid is. Point the front wheels where you want to go. Okay. And at the same time, you want to add a little bit of acceleration which seems, once again, a little counterintuitive. You're already sideways. Your tendency is to hit the brake. Why am I telling you to hit the gas? Well, you have to remember how this occurred. You decelerated, creating a large weight transfer to the front wheel and giving you a lot of extra traction on the front, taking it away on the back. So once you've steered into the skid, that's all you can do with the steering. What you really need to do now is get some weight back to the rear of the car and get the traction back on the back wheels. So that combination of steering into the skid and accelerating fixes the problem as quickly as possible. Huh. That's a good idea. Um, I will Very counterintuitive. Yeah. Once again, you just need to practice it a lot so that you have the confidence and the correct muscle memory. Uh, because like a lot of these things, when you're really at the highest level of driving, if you have to think about it, it's too late. You don't have time to think about this at that point on the edge. You have to know. What about in terms of other sorts of preparation? What are big problems that, you know, uh, you know, cars overheat, can overheat in the summer, or your tires can tend to, um, can I guess, deflate in cer- certain weather? Yeah. What are some other problems that you run into in the cold that you should the be prepared for? The two biggest for? ones, by far, are that uh, for every 10-degree drop in air temperature, you lose one PSI of inflation in your tires. So if you have your winter tires installed in, say, October, and it's 80 degrees, and outside now it's 20, just by temperature change, those tires are six pounds underinflated. And an underinflated tire is not only dangerous, it doesn't give you the performance um, that it's designed for. So it's important, especially in the fall, to check as the temperatures drop and get those pressures back up. Okay. Second thing we see by far, batteries failing, because cold is very, very hard on batteries. And if they're marginal or about to wear out in any way, the colder it gets, the more you're going to notice that. So a lot more battery failures in the cold. Wow. So definitely have jumper cables on you 
And, right. Uh, or, or just keep in mind that, you know, in, in today's world, a battery will last somewhere between three to five years. So if you're at three years or maybe four and there's any question or you notice that it's starting a little slow or, you know, something like that, you know, deal with it then. Don't wait until it becomes a critical issue. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. I th- oh, my pleasure. And uh, it sounds like you're training a lot of people to be better drivers, which is a very admirable person. <laughs> We're doing our best. For our testing table this week, we have Matt Goulet, who's a senior associate editor at the magazine and just got back from the Outdoor Retailer Show in Salt Lake City. What is the Outdoor Retailer Show? So the Outdoor Retailer Show and like a lot of kind of trade shows over the last few years has really kind of blown up a little bit, but it's sort of morphed over the years to, you know, be this big place uh, where every and any brand that has some sort of connection to the outdoors, the outdoor lifestyle, uh, you know. So it's like fashion week for adventure stuff? Yeah, it's it's four-day fashion week for the outdoor world. Okay. Okay, cool. It's a lot more plaid than, you know, like black and A-line <laughs> skirts, but close. Um, so you went and yes. uh, saw some cool stuff. Saw some great stuff. Saw some great stuff. So um, I'm excited to find out what you saw. What was the coolest thing you saw? So I saw a lot of cool stuff, but on the technical side of things, if you want to get technical with it, because I saw some things that were just not too techy, but... Just cool. Like pretty. Yeah. Um, but on the technical side, Vibram, who you probably better know for making those horrifying five-finger-soled shoes. Oh, are those still popular? I uh, don't know. I think, but they're known for their soles and, and making, you know, kind of very technical, grippy soles and shoes. Um, so for this coming winter, they've released a new kind of sole compound called Arctic Grip, which is pretty amazing in that we got to test it out at the show, and they had sort of a slick... Uh, incline and then decline of, of melting ice just sitting in the middle of their booth there. They'd have you put on their new shoes outfitted with the sole, and uh, you would walk across the ice, kind of your knees buckling and bent up, half thinking you were going to you know, slip and fall off this thing, and you're grippy, sticky on slick, wet ice, climbing up and going down it. Um, and what they've done is sort of have this proprietary compound where the lugs of the sole, uh, like the rubber itself, interacts with the water on the slick ice, and kind of creates this like half bond that makes it super grippy and sticky um, and you don't slip. So usually the idea is, you know, there was tons of other uh, companies there selling like chains that you essentially put on your shoes so you can like run in the snow. These pretty much eliminate that. Um, so you'll find those. That's so cool. It's so cool. And they wouldn't tell me what was in it or what it was doing because it's like. Well, right, because they yeah, don't want anybody else yeah, getting it. They that threaten it makes to kill you like you. a gecko. Like you just. Yeah. Like, it oh, was, that's crazy. Can you walk up a wall? I mean, like, what, what grade can you walk up on these things? I want to say they were touting it to me, and now it's been a few days and I forget. It was between 10 and 20% incline, okay. which isn't like crazy, but, you know, it's a workout on a treadmill, so it's, like, pretty good. Right. Um, and it's enough that, you know, if you're on a slick surface, you're going to have, you'd be struggling otherwise if you didn't have these on. So it's kind of really impressive stuff. Um, those, the, the whole soles are outfitted with another part of their rubber that is, um, it, it sort of, like, changes colors when it, the surface of the ground is 32 degrees and it sort of, like, re- calibrates the rubber somehow, and so, like, you get extra grippy from that, and then you have the ice interacting grip as well and it's just wow. the most amazing stuff so you'll find those on your wolverine boots and wolverine owns a few different companies like Spear and stuff um and you'll find those next fall 
It'll be great. Wow. Yeah. I, do they make them for women? I want them. Yeah. I mean, everything that's under the Wolverine umbrella, which is a few different brands like Merrill, a couple of, you know, outdoor uh-huh. uh, shoe companies uh-huh. like that. Um, those will all have them for in other men's and women's shoes f- in the fall of 2016. And then in the year following, it's sort of available. It's fair game for everyone. It seems like that'd be a really good idea. So I run in the winter, you mm-hmm. know, and you run out in the, in the ice. And every anytime it's snowing, I just don't run outside because yeah. I'm like, I'm going to break my face yeah um but that seems like a good idea and so many so many people so many especially uh, older people the the winter is really dangerous mm-hmm. and you you know like my uh, my grandma actually slipped on some ice and broke her hip um which happens a mm-hmm. lot so um it's a really cool idea yeah and they touted the durability about this too like the stuff doesn't wear out essentially so they showed me a sole that they'd kind of tested out for like 200 miles uh, walking around in all sorts of conditions so okay what else did you see that was what did you see that was pretty so on the pretty side is this company called Snowpeak. They're from Japan. They started in Japan in like the mid-50s. Uh, but they've kind of come to the U.S. as of late, and they're based out of Portland, the U.S. now. And it's sort of like lifestyle camping. It's sort of like what every jerk in Brooklyn imagines themselves to be when they go outdoors. It's sort of like kind of cutesy but like good like performing. Instagram-appropriate, Instagram-approved camping. Exactly. Okay. Just like gorgeous, cool camping uh like lifestyle camping okay but they make some good stuff and actually their clothes is like they're really like kind of luxurious and technical and it kind of is on the higher end stuff but they made this um little attachment that on your like fuel for let's say your camp stove or something like that when you get to the drags like the bottom of the canister you still get a little fuel left but it's really not enough to like fuel an actual stove to cook dinner they've created this little attachment that you just screw on top and it's basically just like a hurricane and and uh you know, like a little wick, and it just taps out the rest of the the fuel in your canister to make like a little candlelight to make oh, that's like a, cool. yeah. And it's just like a pretty little flame that you have in a little you know hurricane or like globe uh-huh. um, that that screws right on top to the canister. So you're gonna set it like on your picnic table, and you have a gorgeous Instagram spread. So you use it after. Yeah, yeah, you use and, it after you finish cooking, yep. and then you take a photo of it with your phone that you should not be using because you're camping and supposed to be getting back in touch with nature. Right. Well, you do a later, Graham, when you're back in society <laughs> and you can show everyone how amazing and gorgeous a weekend you had. Um, <clears throat> so Snow Peaks Mini Flame, it's called. It's like going to go for like 40 bucks, and it's just like a cool little attachment that that's uh, it's like a fun fun thing to kind of okay. burn off the dregs of your fuel with. Awesome. Yeah. What else? Uh, the other thing I liked is, well, I'm a big advocate of headlamps. I think... You can never own enough, and Wait, how, how many sh- how many headlamps do you own? I have like two, but I I need more. <laughs> so the good people at Petzl who've been making great headlamps for a long time, they last year or two years ago came out with um, three actic technology on their headlamps, which is sort of has like a light sensor built in onto the front of it. So and so it'll like dim the light. Oh, that's brilliant. Based on based on, you know, just right. sort of like the light conditions around you. So it's sort of like a self-adjusting headlamp. Right. Helps save battery, doesn't blind, you know, the person you're talking to. Right. So they've had that for a couple of years. And now this year they introduced um, sort of the MyPetzl app and Bluetooth technology onto the headlamp, which is like who needs like another Bluetooth connectivity, especially on like, you know, a piece of lighting gear. But the problem with most headlamps is that the charge on them, you can't like you can never really tell how much charge you have. Like, you know, the light will either be green or yellow or red when you have a low battery, but like, how much time is that? At what lumens am I you know, going to get out of this? You don't right. know. So you connect your headlamp to the Bluetooth, which connects to the app, 
and it's reading directly the battery level of your headlamp, it can tell you, oh, like at this output, you have eight hours left and, you know, using this weight. Also, on top of that, you can program it to say, hey, I want to go running for three hours. You know, I have this much battery left. Like, give me the optimal output I can to extend the battery for as long as this. Or you can program it to be like, hey, I'm going, you know, backpacking and, you know, at dusk automatically there's like programs in the app that'll automatically you know direct your oh, light like into and like, maybe like brighten it as right, it gets darker to those conditions oh, that's pretty so cool. it's just like it's like one of those like weird add-ons that you didn't think you need but it's also kind of brilliant and great between just sort of telling you battery wise what you have and then kind of giving you the optimal output for you want so that sounds cool it's good stuff so what's uh if you you know if you buy all this stuff what's your next outdoor adventure you're going on <laughs> oh i've talked about this before but not on this program there is a hut in the middle of the Upper Peninsula of Michigan that you have just have to like hike to, and it's like you know, like it's like a yurt in the middle of nowhere, and it's probably like a four-hour, three-hour hike out there, and like you can only get there like in the snow, and you have to snowshoe out there. It'd be a great place to bring a little mini flame and bring your headlamp and a pair of snowshoes, and if you're trucking over ice, you probably have your your Vibram soles, your market groups, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. then you might just bring your backpack for the heck of it. Yeah. Well, uh, enjoy. I'm looking forward to it. So that's our show. The Most Useful Podcast Ever is produced by Jack Dillon. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, and while you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about winter driving and car care, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.